The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. This line, spoken by the conspirator Cassius in William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, is as helpful an inroad as any into debates surrounding astrology in Elizabethan England. Are we merely the products of our stars? Does our horoscope determine who we are, what we do, what happens to us and how we react? And if so, is there really such a thing as free will? Are all our decisions predetermined? Can we really be held responsible for our own wrongdoing? While in modern parlance, astrology is usually thought of as simply the influence of the stars and planets on the Earth, in Elizabethan England it was closely tied to a variety of occult and scientific disciplines, including alchemy, ritual magic, fortune-telling, and medicine. The planetary bodies were believed to influence nearly every aspect of life. Steeped in the humanist traditions of Renaissance Italy, Astrology in the Renaissance and early modern era had a number of applications, ranging from world events to individual health. Electional astrology, for example, determined the proper timing for ceremonies and rituals. Mundane astrology predicted historical events and the weather. Natal astrology predicted the fortunes of individuals based on the position of the planets at their birth. Medical astrology determined physical weaknesses allowing physicians to determine the likely cause of disease and to offer cures. In terms of occult studies, astrology was part of a constellation of disciplines, including divination, alchemy, and ritual magic, that formed the field of learned magic. Learned magic was distinguished from other practices by the linguistic and mathematical skills that were required to perform the necessary measurements and calculations, and to read and understand ancient Greek and Roman occult texts not to mention the many commentaries on those texts by Jewish and Muslim scholars. Astrology gained a foothold in the English royal court under Elizabeth's grandfather, Henry VII, and her father, Henry VIII. While Henry VII consulted astrologers to determine auspicious days and times for court ceremonies and holidays, Henry VIII's physicians consulted the opinions of astrologers in trying to treat the king's many illnesses. But it was Elizabeth and her court astrologer John Dee that popularized and legitimized astrology in Renaissance England. Dee had already cast the horoscope of Queen Mary I, Elizabeth's older half-sister, and did the same for Elizabeth. With the rise in astrology's popularity in the 16th century, it became a major subject of study in universities, and physicians received regular training in astrology. Not everyone agreed with this practice, however. Disagreements and debates among practitioners gave astrology the impression of being an especially imprecise science, and attracted the criticism of mathematicians, physicians, theologians, and scholars of the occult alike. German polymath Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim strongly criticized astrology as a hopelessly disjointed field in his writings on occult philosophy. I dare say that the inconsistency of this art doth openly declare that it is no art, 
For so much as touching the principles thereof, the Indians have one opinion, the Chaldeans another, the Egyptians another, the Moors another, the Jews another, the Greeks another, the Latins another, the ancients another, and the latter writers another. Other critics viewed astrology as tantamount to heresy. English playwright and satirist Thomas Nash insisted that Londoners might take the wave of recent violence in their city and... Assign it to the regiment and operation of the planets. They say Venus, Mars, or Saturn are motives thereof, and never mention our sins, which are his chief procreators. The increase in critiques of astrology in 16th century England is probably due to the drastic increase in astrology's popularity, largely due to Dr. John Dee. Considering Dee's fascination with alchemy and other magical and scientific studies, it perhaps makes sense that his parish church while growing up was the Church of St. Dunstan in London, St. Dunstan being the patron of goldsmiths and, by extension, alchemists. As a student at Trinity College, Cambridge, John Dee first displayed his interest in magic and science through an unusual means, as a college theatre kid. Dee had been chosen to produce a series of impressive stage effects for the college's production of the play Peace by the ancient Greek playwright Aristophanes. Dee surprised and delighted the crowd with his special effects, and quickly earned a reputation as a magician. Dee's interest in magic and astrology backfired in the spring of 1555, however, when Queen Mary I of England announced her pregnancy. It was a fraught occasion in the English court. Mary, daughter of Henry VIII and his first queen, Catherine of Aragon, was married to King Philip II of Spain. Under the agreement established by the English nobility, if Mary died without an heir, Philip would not be allowed to interfere with the succession, meaning that Mary's younger half-sister, Elizabeth, would become queen. Adding to the tension, Mary and Philip were staunch Catholics, while Elizabeth, like her mother Anne Boleyn, was a Protestant. Much uncertainty surrounded Mary's pregnancy. She was already 39 and had not yet managed to produce a living heir. A child would consolidate Philip's power in England and eliminate Elizabeth from the line of succession. In her uncertainty, Elizabeth turned to John Dee asking him to use magic in order to divine the future of Mary and Philip's child and Elizabeth's chances of becoming queen. Dee attempted to divine the future for Elizabeth in several different locations in April and May of that year. When he moved to London to continue his divinations, officials of Queen Mary's Privy Council arrested Dee for suspicion of magic. Mary's arrest of Dee was probably due less to his involvement in magic and more to provide fodder for accusations of conspiracy against Elizabeth. As Mary's anxiety about her pregnancy grew, the man who had denounced Dee suffered terrible misfortunes. One of his children died while another was struck blind, cementing in everyone's mind that Dee was a magician capable of taking revenge on his enemies. Mary's Privy Council panicked. By June, the charges against Dee and his companions expanded from misuse of astrology to conjuring and witchcraft. They moved Dee to the Tower of London in order to apply torture and secure a confession. 
The Privy Council failed to convict him of witchcraft, however, and Dee made several public appearances by that summer. The rumor that Dee was a conjurer of wicked and damned spirits would stick for the rest of his life. Mary's pregnancy in 1555 ultimately failed, and she died just a few years later. Her husband, Philip, who was in Brussels during Mary's illness, wrote to his sister saying, I felt a reasonable regret for her death. With her sister's death, Elizabeth became Queen of England. On hearing the news, she famously quoted Psalm 118, saying, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. When Elizabeth took the throne, she invited John Dee to become her astrological and scientific advisor, and it was Dee who calculated January 15, 1559, as the proper date for her coronation. As Dee began to cement his reputation as an astrologer, he developed his own astrological theories and methods. One major contribution was the development of a physical mechanism to explain the effect of the planets here on Earth. Dee concluded that the reason the movement of the celestial bodies influenced material life was due to invisible rays, which beamed down from the heavens and penetrated all matter, even human bodies. He also worked to legitimize the study of astrology and bolster it against its critics by pointing to its foundation in mathematics and scientific observation. Dee believed that humans were not merely subject to the faults in their stars, but that it was possible to harness the celestial powers in order to effect change on Earth. In other words, astrology became the basis by which John Dee sought to perform magic. By choosing the correct timings for rituals, ensuring that the planets would be in an alignment most favorable to the change the magician sought to effect, much like aligning mirrors in order to focus and redirect light, Dee theorized that humans could bring about their will with the help of the planetary rays. In addition to being Elizabeth's court astrologer, John Dee also had a fascination with alchemy, magic, science, and mathematics. While he focused mainly on humanistic pursuits involving astrology and mathematics, from the 1580s onward, Dee focused intently on angelology and angel magic. Dee thought that numerology and mathematics held the key to communication with angels and access to divine power. He documented his attempts to access and communicate with angels extensively in his diaries. According to one such diary, after many years of study, Dee finally succeeded in receiving communications and guidance from angels. At length, I perceived only God, and, by his good angels, could satisfy my desire, which was to understand the natures of all his creatures. And herein I had dealed sundry ways, and at length had found the mercies of God, such as to send me the instruction of Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel, and diverse other his good and faithful messengers. In one of these visitations, Dee reports that the angel Raphael revealed that his destiny was to be reviled as a sorcerer. And now to let thee to understand why thou hadst not thus these rare gifts and promises performed unto thee, it was the will of God to keep them away, and to suffer the heart of thy supreme head and governor under God to be hardened against thee, that thou art no better account made of unto him but to be such an one that doth deal with devils and by sorcery, 
as you commonly term them, witchcraft. Yet that same merciful God shall keep thee. So if thou wilt do as God shall command thee by this message, thou shalt have all these messages, promises, and wisdom. For the philosopher's stone, for God will be with thee and for thee, and his blessed angels shall be thy comfort. Dee's all-consuming focus on angels has caused some historians to suggest he may have become mentally ill. Historians and anthropologists that focus on the mentality and culture of 16th century Europe, however, point to the essential role of the occult in the popular imagination and culture of the time. These historians argue that there was no clear division between science, magic, and religion in Renaissance England. Some go so far as to argue that we lose something essential from each of these fields by attempting to separate them in our own time. Dee's desire to gain divine wisdom was, as he tells us in his diary, based on his desire to understand the natures of all God's creatures. Dee saw no difference between astrology, mathematics, angelology, magic, biology, and physics. All of these fields and more existed simultaneously in his natural philosophy. But the real key to understanding Dee's interest in angels may lie in the preceding decade, the 1570s. In order to understand why Dee turned his focus from natural philosophy to angels, it may help to turn to Dee's library, which housed a large number of books concerned with apocalyptic visions and signs of the end of the world. Dee was not the only one who thought the 1580s signaled the end times. Throughout the 1570s and 80s, a series of texts appeared recounting stories of new stars in the heavens, earthquakes, comets, and other disturbing natural phenomena. Natural philosophers and theologians alike insisted that humankind's sins had finally taken their toll on nature, and the world was beginning to fall apart. Dee's need to understand these phenomena centered on a healthy fear of the apocalypse, but also on his desire for a new world, a purer, better existence in which humans coexisted in harmony with the natural world, a new Eden. John Dee became such a fixture in Renaissance English culture that he appears to have inspired at least one of the great playwrights of his day. In The Tempest, William Shakespeare features the character of Prospero, a powerful magician whose magic drives the action of the play and who may have been based on John Dee. To further align John Dee with his desire for a new Eden, Prospero has taken up shop on a deserted island which he has bent to his will with magic in order to make a home for himself and his daughter Miranda. Modern critics tend to note the fact that Prospero dominates the island's native inhabitant, Caliban, in order to do so. In the last act, after taking revenge on his enemies, punishing Caliban, and securing a royal marriage for Miranda, Prospero promises to divest himself of the tools of his magical trade. But this rough magic I here abjure. And when I have required some heavenly music, which even now I do, to work mine end upon their senses that this airy charm is for, I'll break my staff, 
bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. The weariness in Shakespeare's Prospero echoes the end of Dee's own career in the 1590s. By then, church officials began to more strongly criticize astrology and magic as diabolical practices, and scientists had begun to denigrate them as superstition. After an unsuccessful attempt to gain a royal appointment for himself in Central Europe, Dee returned to England in 1589 to find that vandals had broken into his home stolen his instruments, and ruined many of the books in his prized library. To ease his financial hardships, Elizabeth granted Dee a position at Christ College in Manchester in 1595, where he was encouraged to give up his interest in the occult. He retired to London a decade later. While John Dee enjoyed modest success as Queen Elizabeth's unofficial court astrologer, his arrest in 1555 and his later troubles show that casting horoscopes was no light matter. In 1558, Sir Anthony Fortescue was arrested on the grounds of treason, along with a few astrologers he had hired. Their alleged crime was casting Queen Elizabeth's horoscope in order to calculate the length of her life and the longevity of her government. Fortescue was released on bail, and no further action appears to have been taken. Three years later, however, he was arrested again for conspiring in a treasonous plot to depose Elizabeth and install her cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, as Queen of England. This plot involved Mary, Fortescue, two brothers, Arthur and Edward Pole, the Earl of Northumberland, the French Duc de Guise, and a collection of French and Spanish ambassadors— who conjured a spirit that predicted both that their plan would succeed and that Queen Elizabeth would soon die of natural causes. The plot was discovered, and the conspirators were arrested, tried, and convicted of treason. The Pole brothers both died in captivity in the Tower of London, while Fortescue managed to secure his release and flee England, eventually dying in exile. Queen Elizabeth would go on to live and reign another 40 years. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts and help spread the word. You can subscribe to Enchanted on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Special thanks this week to Kiernan Angley, Kit Baker, John Pippin, and Randy Wild. Original music this week is by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast, or on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. To learn more about the show or to support Enchanted and help keep the magic going, please visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. 
Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.